Good morning. Our gospel reading this morning is from Philippians 1, 21 through 30. And it says this. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whenever I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you will stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that, and, and that by God. For, that, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since are you are going through the same struggle now that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. The word of the Lord. Good morning, church. You know, I was sitting listening and uh, I don't know, you were singing it this morning. Did you sense that? I heard your praise. I heard your readiness to be in the presence of the Lord. And it buoyed me up. It also reminded me that I've been coming to this church on and off for 40 plus years. This church sent me on my first college mission trip when I was a student at Point Loma. My family, uh, extended families attended this church for 50 years. So I stand here preaching to a church that I um, love and that I care about and that I understand is in a time of uncertainty and anxiety. So I pray uh, that you hear the words of this sermon today as uh, offered from one who um, is seeking the Lord with you in this time of uncertainty. Let me tell you first just a little story that got me thinking about the passages that were in the lectionary this week. I'm in a book club, and one of the members of the book club, we were choosing our books recently for the coming year, and one of them confessed that last year, some of the books that we chose, she found that they kind of got bogged down in the middle. Pretty heavy reading. And she said, when I was reading those books that got bogged down and the plot lines seemed to be stalled or a little unappealing, she said, I had a decision to make. Do I set the book aside and go do something else? Or do I just keep slogging through? And somehow knowing that the rest of you are slogging through too, mostly has kept me going. She was describing a mid-story decision. Do you keep reading or do you set the book aside? Now, she was talking about books, but she could have been talking about faith 
and local church life right now. This church is mid-story in a plot line that's uncertain and a bit bogged down. What will happen in the appeal process for our pastor? What will happen to this church as the ordeal drags on? Will staff or congregation just kind of slip away from exhaustion? And what happens to our denomination as more clergy trials, that phrase is hard to say, um, continue around issues that would have been impossible to imagine a year ago? Will the movements that are afoot in the broader church, will they clarify standards or will they erode trust? And maybe most importantly, can we trust that God is at work in this sad and messy time? Where is this storyline going? The lectionary texts that were given for today are kind of a treasure trove. I could have gone so many directions. But I've read them and read them and tried to listen well, asking, how do I dig into these texts on behalf of this congregation? What's the word? What's the spirit trying to say to this church? Tell me. Help me to be a faithful messenger to these folks, these wonderful folks. And I know that we're living mid-story. And let's look to scripture and see if there's some help for a time like this. The two texts that I decided to pull forward, one's from the Old Testament and one is the Philippians passage that we just heard read. But let me mention the Old Testament story, a very familiar one, first. It's a great story that comes in the middle of stuff. It's Exodus 16, and in Exodus 16, we find the Israelites wandering and complaining. They're lost. Some declare that they would rather have stayed in Egypt, where at least they knew what to expect, to, to find themselves where they are. They've come to a place where they've lost the backstory. They seem to have forgotten that they were slaves, and by God's miraculous grace, they are free. And they've forgotten because they're hungry, and things aren't clear, and the path is a lot harder than they imagined. The immediate and real needs of the people have allowed them to forget the promise. Promised land, promised land, promised land. And in this chapter, in one of the most moving accounts of God's provision, Moses says to the people, God has heard you. God is listening. And here in the wilderness, God will provide. And I think I get tears in my eyes every time I read. And in the evening, the quail came. And in the morning, after the frost warmed, there was, quote, a fine flaky substance that was given God's bread for the journey, manna. But in this story, there's also kind of a humorous human aspect. 
the people's response isn't, thanks be to God for your wonderful gift. It's like, manna? What is this? Protein powder sprinkled on the bushes? <laughs> what is this, huh? God is meeting their needs, but not their expectation. Mid-story, the Israelites are having a hard time seeing that God is listening, God is responding, and God is giving them enough to keep them moving forward. And then we come to this epistle reading in Philippians, and we find a church whose leader is awaiting trial for preaching the gospel. They don't know what's going to happen to their beloved leader. And Paul is deeply worried about the church that he planted and, and uh, sought to see flourish. As you know, the Philippian church is the first church that's planted in Europe. Paul and his companions, responding to a, vis a vision, have left Turkey, got in their boat, and gone across to Greece. And when they arrived at Philippi and in the region, they went and sought out prayerful people and they found a bunch of women by the river. And it was Lydia who first believed. And Lydia, this fabric dealer in purple cloth who opened her house. And there in that little house church, a new church was born and planted. And while we were there, Acts 16 continues to tell us that Paul went out and he and Silas did what they did, which was get in trouble. They saw a woman who was prophesying, making money for someone, really being trafficked, if you will, in our terms. And they cast out that demon and she couldn't do what her owner wanted her to do anymore. And the owner got upset. They intervened in their society they intervened for someone's freedom, and it infuriated the owner, upset the local authorities, and Paul was thrown in jail. That was when the church began. It's 10 years later, different imprisonment. Paul's been out there preaching. He was in prison then, he's in prison now. Where is he in prison? We don't know for sure, Caesarea. Is he Ephesus, maybe, perhaps Rome? And we don't know exactly why he's in prison this time either. In his letter, he doesn't say. But we know from Acts and from reading about Paul that the message that he preached challenged conventional loyalties. Paul's gospel anthem in Galatians 3.28 says, There is no longer Jew or Greek slave or free, male or female, you are one in Christ Jesus. That kind of teaching made Paul into what one commentator called a, quote, civic nuisance for disrupting the social order. Those early churches were populated by those that the society didn't prioritize. Lots of women, lots of slaves, lots of folks that didn't get the Citizen of the Year 
Award. But Paul kept preaching everywhere he went, starting new churches, that God had come in Jesus to do something new, something so different that even if it upset the local authorities and landed him in jail, maybe seven times from all the hints, maybe more, all those hints in the gospel, even so, this freeing gospel Good news to all people must continue to be preached. And so Paul, who the Philippians knows, no, the Philippians know so well, they never say, like, why are you? They don't seem to be worried, like, he's in prison. They go, yeah, we know you, Paul. And so Paul writes to them, and he says, stand firm in the gospel, be united, and choose joy. We don't know what the Philippians said in return. We only have the one side of the correspondence. But we know, do know from Paul's letter that there are hints of disunity. And there's a description of other preachers in the area that are offering a different message. This is a tough time for them. There's trouble afoot. They don't know which way to think or believe. And Paul says, unity. And he says, joy. And the people probably go, huh? That's all you got, Paul? It's hard for them to see that God's listening, responding, and giving them enough to be spiritually resilient, to continue to believe, and to live as loving disciples in their conflicted communities. I don't know what's in your head, but I suspect you're already making some parallels between Paul and the Philippians and San Diego and, you know. When I first read the text, I thought, well, sometimes preachers don't have to do much, but sort of just put the scripture out there. And I'm grateful that that's the case today. If we name our own story, I've hinted at it so far. This is a difficult season for this church. For more than six months, there have been hard meetings, harsh challenges, harsh charges, endless discussions, deep lament, much anxiety, many prayers. We're hanging in there, standing firm. And while this is happening, there's other storylines, family issues, social concerns, work realities. And when I stepped back and looked at our church's story this week, I couldn't help in reading the news and scrolling through my phone, sorry, I do it way too much, that there are some parallels in our world that aren't happy parallels, but they give some perspective. This week, the United Methodists put, their, put a bishop on trial for the very first time. Their sad event was 18 months in the making, and the bishop was acquitted in a four-day trial. Now that denomination has the hard work of rebuilding trust because everybody wasn't happy with the outcome. A few weeks ago, the Southern Baptists doubled down and barred women from leadership, and they kicked out Saddleback just up the five an hour or so. So many churches 
so many denominations, so many groups, are feeling the weight of institutional upheaval. Our changing society, times, and climate is asking the Christian church writ large to follow Jesus in the here and now. And some of the maps we've relied upon are not as clear as they seem once, as they once seemed. That pushes against some of our expectations, our traditions, interpretations of doctrine and practice. We seem to be entering into a new reformation, and things are very unsettled in the world. Let's go back to Paul for a minute. He's looking at an unsettled time, a baby church. There is no Christianity yet, just some random little churches. They couldn't imagine where we are today. And he writes from his dank and depressing prison as he's probably waiting for a Roman official to make the rounds around the empire to to determine whether he will live or die or be set free. And when Paul's writing from there, he doesn't write a letter of resistance and rebellion or of, yeah, I think we should all just throw in. He writes a letter of friendship. Throughout his letter in Philippians, and we read just a portion, Paul appeals to friendship. He says, what do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you're mid-story? He says, be of one soul. Be of the same mind. Seek to be partners even when apart. And remember that friends in Christ have all things in common. As I read this portion and other portions of Philippians, two words just kept signaling to me. And the first word is simply the word with. This common preposition gently reminds the hearers then and now of a spirit of accompaniment between Paul and the Philippians. Whether they're together face to face or whether they're far apart from one another, they're linked by this bond, this braid, one with Christ, one with each other, one with Paul. They are bonded together with. How do we live with one another? The other simple word is simply joy. I mean, you can't preach on Philippians without putting it front and center. 16 times it shows up in various forms in the letter. Paul is reminding the church through this letter that joy is the disposition of the Christian who knows that God is at work, always at work, always working for the good. God is doing something even when we don't know what God is doing. This word joy is kind of a sneaky cousin of happiness. Happiness is more circumstantial than joy is. Frederick Buechner says that joy is as notoriously unpredictable as the one who bequeaths it. It bubbles up when the spirit is present. We also know that joy is one of the fruit of the spirit. It grows when the spirit is at work. And we know that the Spirit of God knows how to work in hard and unpredictable circumstances. Paul's learned a lot through suffering. 
He's been here before. And he says, when you're suffering, look for God's purposes and Jesus' presence anyway. Ignatius of, Ignatius of Loyola would sum up this sort of philosophy of Paul's several centuries later by saying, seek God in all things. Look for the joy. It's one of God's markers. I was looking for joy this week, and since I work on campus right over there in Smee Hall and I park in Draper Hall, Draper parking lot over there, I go in front of this church's Friendship Plaza. I go through the Friendship Plaza twice a day, at least, and maybe more if I've forgotten my phone in my car. That happens. <laughs> and as I was walking this week across the church campus on the way to my office, I was paying attention and one day, I think it was Monday, Jordan and Rihanna came busting out of the Children's Center, their arms full of stuff, and they were laughing. And I said, that's why the children and their families want to come. Joy. Wednesday, I saw Lexi. She had a clipboard. She was working on things, and she enthusiastically came over. And I said, I heard one of our students interned. And she said, yeah. And we were talking about the joy of seeing students' lives engaged with the youth. It was Thursday, I think, I saw Matt. I dropped by to talk about the service. And he greeted me with hospitality and joy. And this sort of, we're being church. I talked to Bailey, who was singing over here. Not here on the Friendship Plaza. We were over, you know, getting lunch over on campus. And she was so excited, full of joy, to be a part of the worship team this morning. When I walked by on Wednesday night, I saw Keith and Debbie Hawley eating lunch, surrounded by extended family on the Wednesday night meal. Last Sunday, I heard Victor say, anybody want to go to the cafe? Anybody? Community builder that he is. I saw a lot of joy. I saw a lot of hope being extended. These are hard times and we're living with some constant anxiety, but we have a lot of models of people who are choosing joy, trusting that God is at work here and in this church. This week I was also reading one of the books that, um, well, the book that we're reading in Community Classroom, uh, one of the venues of Point Loma's classes, and we're reading a new book by Father Greg Boyle, and if you've heard him before or read Tattoos on the Heart, you know that he works with incarcerated individuals, those who work primar uh, live in places where gangs uh, get a hold of kids really young, tough circumstances. His neighbors are connected to the prison system and talk about sentences and waiting trial and hoping to get free and have some times of life again. And his books, because this is like the third one I've read, are this like unceasing hunt for joy in impossible circumstances. And he finds it in this last book, which is called The Whole Language, The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. He ends 
with this question. Given all the circumstances, hard times, situations that aren't going to turn out happily ever after, he asks, how then to carry each other in our hearts? One heartbeat, single garment. We choose to be essential allies of each other and to hear God's word as loud as we can. The same house, we choose belonging. It's where we start. So, as I conclude, it's simple. We are mid-story. We do not know how this story will end. The Israelites ate their quail and their manna. They didn't know if and when they'd reach the promised land. But we do. They got there. The Philippians didn't know if Paul would live or die. And we know that he was released from prison, preached some more, started some more churches. But he never did get to go back to Philippi and visit his friends. That thing he hoped for didn't happen. We don't know what the next few weeks will turn out. We don't know. But mid-story, we don't have to know. Paul's reminded us, with joy, stand firm. So I'm going to let Paul speak once more and reread those last few verses from Philippians 1. Dear friends, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. For God has graciously granted you the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but are suffering for him as well. With joy. With joy. God's story and ours is still being written. Let us live in a manner worthy of God's inclusive gospel that won't write out 